0: Please be seated. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. I'd uh, like to start a little summer series with you. You've got mail. Uh, As you will, I hope, know, uh, we find in the Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Letters of Christ to the Seven Churches in Asia, and I'd like to consider these, not one a week, but uh, dragging it out a little bit to consider some of the messages and applications that may be very important also for us in our day, as they were for them in the first century. Um, I would like to read to you chapter 1, which in so many ways sets the tone of the letter, and then I'll be looking especially with you at chapter 2, the letter to Ephesus from uh, verse 1 down to verse 7. But let's begin at the beginning. Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you, and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen." I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that's called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive. Forevermore, amen. And I have the keys of death, excuse me, of Hades and death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands is this The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches the passage for tonight to the church excuse me to the angel of the church of Ephesus right these things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands i know your works your labor your patience that you cannot bear those who are evil and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate." Who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, even as the Lord Himself gave this blessing to those who had heard and read the words of this prophecy, and keep the things that are written in it. So we pray that you would bless us likewise, as so many years since we turned back to these words, that we might hear again from our Lord Jesus Christ, consider our ways, and pray that you would be more and more pleased with us as we, your church, seek to serve you today with the power that you supply by the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would therefore bless our study in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in the spring of AD 61, on a sandy beach in the Mediterranean, the elders of the church in Ephesus were weeping as they said goodbye for the last time to their beloved friend, Paul. He was the first Christian missionary to Europe, and every one of those, uh, to Ephesus rather, and every one of those elders owed him their very lives. He'd lived with them, you remember, for some three years, teaching them publicly and from house to house, testifying, he says, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. But he said, now from this time on, you're not going to see my face again. And so he would pray with them once more and commend them to the grace of God. But right before he prays and before he takes his leave, he wants to give them one last charge a solemn charge, saying to those men, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone, night and day, with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. And I've shown you that in every way, by laboring like this, you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And then he kneeled down and prayed with those men. And after more tears and embraces, the Ephesian elders walked Paul to the boat and watched their spiritual father set sail. And right then and there, those men must have looked each other in the eye and swore by the living God that they would never permit such wolves, those unorthodox men in sheep's clothing, to corrupt the blessed church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. A wonderful phrase that I won't get into now. But if you knew then that the Lord Jesus was, a few years later, to write to the churches in Asia... And you asked which one would you expect to be commended the most which one do you think would be the most faithful well surely you would have expected the answer to be ephesus because they had so many advantages i mean paul had been with them for three years teaching them in that public hall and as well as every day in the homes priscilla and aquila had ministered there congregation met in their home. Apollos began in Ephesus and preached with tremendous power in the synagogues, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Paul had later sent Timothy and then Tychicus to Ephesus to build them up and to command certain men to teach no stra- not to teach strange doctrines. And I think most remarkably, when Paul wrote his letter to the Ephesian church, unlike all the rest of his letters, he didn't have anything to correct them about. So this church had every advantage. Now a few years have passed. How are things going? Well, the Lord now has a word for them, and I'd like to begin to open that for you tonight. Uh, tonight we're just going to consider some of the, the, the big things in the book in the passage and orient ourselves, and next time we'll get more into some specific applications about the matter of love and doing the first works and returning and repenting and making the corrections that the Lord expresses here. But let me spend a few minutes this evening beginning our study, explaining the passage, considering how we might interpret it, the big picture, and then take three lessons for ourselves today. Okay? What does it mean? How we, how should we interpret it, big picture, three lessons? Well. The letter, of course, uh, is dedicated to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Right at the beginning, you say, what does that mean? Well, I assure you it's a notorious difficulty that Christians in every age have wondered about. Uh, the, The answer, probably either heavenly guardians of the churches, a wonderful thought, wouldn't you agree? Or if we translate it as messenger rather than angel. We could take it as the messenger of the churches or perhaps the preacher of those churches. In any case, the the message is is, uh, addressed through them to the congregation, and uh, that's the main point that we'll be considering. Each of the seven letters in Revelation follows the same pattern that's introduced here. The letter begins with an address, the angel of that particular church and is followed by some identification of the Lord Jesus, that he is the one who so-and-so, something drawn from that vision I read to you in chapter one, here it described as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands, compare verses 13 through 15, previous chapter. Next comes a statement of what the Lord knows about the church's spiritual condition Uh, beginning with praise, if at all possible. I know your works. And then in each letter comes some command that addresses in some way the church's need or deficiency. And then finally, each letter ends with a promise. To some of the churches, a specific promise is given, but to all of them, a general promise to reward those who overcome or, uh, or those who conquer. John doesn't really define what he means by overcoming, but it becomes clear as you read through the letters and then read through the whole Revelation, I suppose, that overcoming means being faithful to Christ no matter what difficulties we face. And so the reward given, mentioned at the end of each of those seven letters, is eternal life, described in some familiar picture. Here we read of the tree of life, uh, which is in the paradise of God, and we'll see that again in Revelation 22. So, um, nothing very surprising there. The point seems to be, especially given chapter one, the Lord is preparing the churches for difficult times of of struggle, persecution. They are already starting to feel it, and it's about to get a lot worse. The idea of overcoming or conquering in all of the letters suggests warfare. These letters are written to show the churches their area of weakness as they are about to launch into a difficult time. They will need to endure and prove themselves faithful with a promise that they will share in Christ's victory as they do. And so you notice the familiar formula in each letter. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. The message of each letter is intended for each individual church, but also to be read by a much wider audience, including us. Every church, every Christian indeed, is to heed the warnings and promises in each letter and apply them as this is Holy Scripture. And on this I say everyone agrees so, just some basic understanding of this. An ordinary letter written to the church with a few difficult parts, but we understand the basics pretty well. Now, you ask me, is there something more hidden? What's the, what's the bigger picture of interpretation? I've heard that these letters could be interpreted this way or that way. Well, I do want to spend a few minutes on that, because before we can make some specific application, we need to know what we're dealing with. Um, If you don't know what this is, it's all right, but uh, some dispensational interpreters have argued that the seven letters are actually representing seven periods of history, Uh, beginning with Ephesus as the early apostolic church, followed by Smyrna, because that letter concerns persecution so much, then Pergamum perhaps the time of Constantine, Thyatira, the Middle Ages, Sardis, the time of Reformation, and so on, culminating with the lukewarmness of the Laodicean church, which, wonder of wonders, represents our age. Um, Well, is is this the proper means of interpretation? You may wonder. Um, I uh, have pondered this somewhat, and I'm going to say that I do not think this is the proper way and I'd like to give you some reasons for that, uh, reasons that I hope will help us also later on, so I I hope this will answer some of your questions. First, there is no way that these early churches who received the letter would have understood anything like the stages of church history if the letter to the church in Philadelphia is actually about the missionary movement of the 18th and 19th centuries, the, the people in first century Philadelphia would have been completely misread uh, that letter. The, the Lord addresses specific churches in specific si- situations, which we know from church history, describes exactly the kinds of things that they were facing. And obviously, the Lord expects his readers to take these matters to heart and to understand what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, as we were introduced to this book You remember verse nineteen. Write the things that you have seen—that is, the vision of Christ—and the things which are—that is, right now. This second section of the book, and the things which must take place after this, the the prophecy. And so, um, as the Lord Himself introduces the letters, this is a contemporary. These are contemporary letters to contemporary churches. The things that are. Um, Secondly another matter that may help you. That, that, that approach where you, you make every part of the book a mystery, that's not the way to read apocalyptic literature. Yes, uh, this kind of literature is common in uh, the Jewish writings of the time. Also, you'll find it in various portions of the Old Testament for uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, and so forth. And in apocalyptic writing... Uh, Daniel, again, a uh, very common example that I can hopefully uh, refer you to. You, you have typically uh, the, the, the first section explaining some of the, some of the issues or the history that 's very clear it 's very plain it 's written in the ordinary historical style. There's there's no question that there was a man named Daniel in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, and that he had various adventures and struggles. Okay, so, uh, and then we go into the visions in which things are extremely different. We we have uh, great beasts and terrifying um, uh, visions of uh, of heavenly goings on. Um, In apocalyptic literature, you're supposed to read the historical part as history and the the weird part. Uh, as these visions that explain they give, give heaven's perspective on the earth. So I hope that helps you in reading not only Revelation, but uh, other books where this is common. When we, read the, when we read the early historical parts, just read them for what they are. Thirdly, um, well, frankly, r- applying these seven churches to church history does not work well at all though we are a lukewarm church in America, I grant you. Um, you have to do a great deal of violence, however, in general, to force all the details of these letters to fit, fit later centuries, and some just don't fit, frankly. From everything that we know, these details perfectly describe the situation in the first century, and in so many ways, they don't describe the other centuries afterward. And uh, we shouldn't try to be hammering, hammering out these uh, details. What does this mean? What does that mean? Um, into the other centuries of the church without doing a great deal of violence to the text. We simply can't do it that way. And finally, every church throughout time surely can find something here to help and correct them. So even though this is not about you know each church, about each century, the whole book, uh, and especially the seven letters here as we're considering them, uh, Every church, every Christian is intended to read this and to find something to help them here. So even if modern Americans are lukewarm, we need to recognize that the church in much of the world is on fire. It's not necessarily talking about any specific time and place, but if the lukewarm shoe fits, wear it. The church as a whole was much more lukewarm at various times in the Middle Ages, for instance. If the Laodicean shoe fits them, they should wear it too. But but this is the approach that every church at every time needs to take. So I I hope I didn't spend too much time on this, but it is a popular interpretation. We we shouldn't find any mysterious timeline in history uh, wedged into these seven churches, but we should make application, as we find ourselves being described, uncomfortably, perhaps, in these letters. Uh, I will take a moment to say also that uh, in the last several years, other writers have taken these seven letters to be representative of the whole church in every age. Seven is the number of perfection. Okay, that's true. And so John Stott, for instance, in a very attractive way, I think, in his study of the book of Revelation... Uh, says that these seven letters are setting before us the seven marks of the faithful and godly church in the world throughout the ages. Love in letter one. Suffering in letter two. Truth in letter three. Holiness in letter four. uh, Integrity or sincerity in letter five. Mission in letter six. And zeal in letter seven. Um, In the uh, uh, most... uh, uh, Lauded recent commentary on Revelation, the monumental study by Greg Beale. Study under Greg Beale, by the way, Greg Beale, professor of yours, Westminster. All right. Uh, the author concludes all seven letters uh, are actually really about the same thing, as said before. One mark of the ideal church that is to bear a faithful witness to Christ in the pagan world around us. Well, um, I-, I think we're on a little safer ground to say that uh, surely all these all these marks of the church are to characterize all the churches in the history of the world. And it's, it's hard to say if, if these seven marks um, are intended to, uh, to be the complete spectrum. I, I think that's probably saying too much, but I think we're getting a little uh, further away from the point. The great significance of these letters is that they are addressed to seven real churches and we are uh, to read them in their historical context, but these are intended as Scripture to correct and inform the church in every way. Uh, I don't think we're going to take a complete uh, ecclesiology or doctrine of the church from these seven letters, as perhaps some have described, but I think that we can certainly learn what the Lord thinks of various churches at various times and apply them to ourselves. So... I'm just going to put this out before you. That's going to be my approach. This was a letter for that church at that time with those needs. And is the shoe fitting? Well, let's apply ourselves then to the word. Okay, so we've handled the matter of the, the basic layout, getting the, getting the map before us, uh, how we should read the map. Um, is, is there some you know, uh, mysterious, hidden uh, way to read these letters? Uh, no, I don't think. But now the application, and these are very practical letters. This is the point. Given the unmistakably direct spiritual character of each of these individual letters, the churches then as now are surely intended to read them and to, to say, uh, Lord, is it I? Lord, uh, what would you have me to do? We would wonder... Based on this, what would the Lord say to the angel of the church of the New River Valley? Or the angel of the church of Redeemer, specifically? What do you suppose he would say? What would the Lord commend us on, certain aspects of our life and work? How would the Lord encourage us? And in what way would he call upon us to repent? Well, that is going to be our approach. And I would like to take three lessons now for the rest of our time from this letter just trying to set out some of the major themes into which we'll dive uh, starting next week. My, my first lesson for you from the passage is that we must give ourselves to the work of the Lord. We must give ourselves to the work of the Lord. The Lord commends his people here for their works. That's clear enough. Verse 2 I know your works, your labor. Your patience or perseverance and so forth. You'll notice that it comes up again in verse 5 as he uses that same word. Some of you don't have it translated that way, but uh, works it is. Repent and do the first works. In fact, you'll notice that every letter, all seven, have this familiar beginning to it. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, so forth. Uh, verse 9, I know your Works To the angel of the church at Pergamos, write, and so forth, I know your works. All the letters begin with such an emphasis as our Lord urges them to labor on. Indeed, in the, tr- in the case of the church in Ephesus, which we'll be considering, urges them to repent and to do the works that they did at first. Um... One man writes, the counsel of the Savior is to do the first works, is to engage at once in doing what they did in the first and best days, of their piety, the days of their espousal to God. Let them read the Bible as they then did. Let them pray as they did then. Let them go forth in the duties of active benevolence as they did then. Let them engage in teaching a Sabbath school if they did then. Let them relieve the distressed, instruct the ignorant, raise up the fallen as they did then. Let them open their heart, their purse, and their hand to bless a dying world as it was in this way that they manifested their love then, so this would be better fitted than all other things to rekindle the flame of love when it's almost extinguished. There were things that I did at the beginning of the Christian life, maybe you did at the beginning of your Christian life, uh, things that marked us, which, which showed in a wonderful way our, our, our devotion and our, our, our fervor and zeal for the, for the name of the Lord, and those things are difficult to maintain. Now, there are things that, of course, we you knew first meet someone, for example, in a relationship. You, you have a certain kind of feeling, and you're not expected to have the same kind of feeling as the time goes through. There are certain things that might be proper, for instance, for uh, uh, a time before marriage. and um, But uh, nevertheless, th- there is to be in any sort of relationship like that uh, an ongoing uh, diligence and a commitment, and so it is with the Lord. We perhaps Are not often reminded enough that the Christian life is work, that serving the Lord is hard work. There is perhaps a a fear that if we emphasized work too much, that it might uh, overcome the gospel message of salvation by grace as the free gift of God, not something to be earned. Uh, Paul was very zealous, of course, to to separate these things, but to assure us that although it is not of works, lest anyone should boast, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we have the emphasis here in Ephesus, but we have the emphasis in all seven of the letters that we must give ourselves to the work of serving the Lord with perseverance as we ought. Everything that we are commanded to do in the law of God, everything that we are to do as we make our way in this life uh, serving our Savior. Everything that we do to make the doctrine of God our Savior attractive requires a kind of work, and there's going to be rest enough in heaven, but now is the time to labor on. We live in a, a comfortable world that has many entertaining diversions, which are no doubt lawful, and we think that, you know, the, our jobs, perhaps, or our studies requires so much time as it is. We want our Christian life to come as easily to us and as, as naturally, certainly, as possible. And yet we, we find that it does not, and in fact it never has come easy to us, to persevere in diligence. It is demanding work to serve the Lord day in and day out. And the Lord, for his part, knows that the Ephesian church has done that, and he commends them for it. It delights them. I know your works, your labor, and your patience or perseverance. And so we take this as a simple lesson, um, but an emphasis certainly that we need to see and see again in these letters. We need to be working for the Lord. Am I working hard and diligently and in a persevering way Am I calling as a Christian, or have I left off those first works? Am I sliding in so many ways? Am I not putting forth constant effort and getting the most done I can while it is yet day in serving the Lord? A simple, a simple lesson. Second, we, we must be faithful to the truth. It's the second thing that the Lord brings up. He says, I know that you can't bear with those who are evil, and you've tested those who say that they are apostles and not, and have found them liars. Uh, and you also hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Well, this is what the Ephesian churches commended for twice, and um, Paul had, of course, warned the Ephesian elders that years before, savage wolves would come, not sparing the flock, and they had taken that warning to heart. They were biblical. They had a reputation among the churches, as we later learn from church history, that these people... at Ephesus could spot a fake or a false teaching a mile away. Heretics didn't make it very long in Ephesus. The Nicolaitans are mentioned here, and in the letter to the church at Pergamum, by the way, taking all the evidence together, which is not very much. Uh, It seems that this was a Christian sect, which because of grace, still led people to live immoral lives. And, well, I could spend a whole sermon on this, but Ephesus was a pretty wicked place. It was a notoriously wicked place. In fact, one of its most prominent residents, Heraclitus, he explained why he was called the weeping philosopher in his day. He said nobody could live in Ephesus without weeping at the immorality which we must see on every side. They, they, They lived in a world which was full of immorality with temple prostitution, uh, a port city with manifest wickedness. Uh, Our world is, uh, in so many ways, going back to that pagan kind of morality, and it is discouraging, and it's hard when we find people who name the name of Christ who are nevertheless uh, embracing such wickedness. And we are always being urged to be less rigid or to be more tolerant and even evangelicals today are urging understanding and compromise. Certainly they would never say what the Lord says here, that he hates the works of the Nicolaitans. Um, And he says, you Ephesians have done very well, right? The Lord commended them for their loyalty to the faith once delivered to the saints, that vague, cloudy form of Christianity, which others were buying, they rejected. And um, we, we also need to be perfectly clear on such matters today. We also must be faithful to the truth in the midst of a divided church and in a moral world, okay? Um, now, I realize there's some things in the Bible that aren't as clear and aren't, frankly, as, as important to the mysteries of the faith as other things, but there are things which are perfectly clear, that we should be Absolutely dogmatic on as much as the Lord himself is, and commends that church for being the same. Um, When Erasmus censured Luther for his, quote, obstinate assertiveness, Luther replied, it is not the mark of a Christian mind to take no delight in assertions. On the contrary, a man must delight in assertions or he will be no Christian. And by assertion, I mean a constant adhering, affirming, confessing, maintaining, and an invincible persevering in the truth. All right, the Lord would say, well done at that point, Luther. Such were the Ephesian believers, and the Lord salutes them for it. We should aspire to be no less when we also find ourselves um, uh, beset with immorality, without, and divisions within, We must be determined to maintain the truth against all comers when we know it. Well, thirdly and finally, which we'll be opening up more next time, the letter reminds us that despite all the things which we could say about doctrine and practice, we're nothing without love. Our Lord's Lord's chief complaint against the church at at Ephesus is, you left your first love, or uh, perhaps uh, we could uh, I could give it to you the way it is uh, written here. You've abandoned your love, the first, which allows him to place the emphasis on the word first, so that the love that you had at first, you don't have today. It's not that you have no love, in other words. Uh, you have love, but you don't have your first love. Your love is just not what it used to be. So you'll want to know, then, what kind of love are we talking about? Every time we have a question in the book of Revelation, you realize we have like ten different answers, right? So, um, so some say uh, they've, they lost their brotherly love in their zeal for doctrinal purity, a very good thing in itself. They had allowed a censorious spirit, one writes, a critical spirit to grow among them, the eagerness to root out all mistaken men had entered had ended in a sour and rigid orthodoxy well that that could certainly happen, and we we do see that problem addressed both in the New testament we've certainly seen it ourselves uh, It is a problem, but it's not altogether clear that brotherly love is what he 's speaking about. others of course argue that what he means is the love of God in Christ. That was their first love, and that they were doing the right thing now, but they were, they were no longer motivated by their devotion to the Lord. Uh, like the statement in Jeremiah 2, where the Lord says to Israel, I remember the devotion of your youth, and how as a bride you loved me. Beal argues that um, it's, it's neither brotherly love nor the love of God. It's actually love to the lost world. You say, where, did, where does he get that from? Well, from the fact that at the beginning here, these uh, these churches are, are called lights. The identification of Christ at the beginning of the letter is the one who works among the lampstands. And the threat, should they fail to repent, that he would remove their lampstand. He is speaking to Christians in the world, in other words, as light bearers, and points out that the lampstand and the witness are occurring together uh, he in Revelation 11, and the entire thought is hearkening back to the Lord's remark about a lamp being put on a stand that's intended to give light to those who are in the house. Where is your love for the dying world? So, those are the options. What's the correct interpretation? Uh, frankly, I, I don't think it makes a great deal of difference what we choose because these three forms of love are presented to us as One in so many ways, in the Christian life. That is to say, we don't have and can't have any true love of others that doesn't originate in the love of God and Christ, and anyone whose heart is so full of love that the love of Christ would compel them, therefore, to uh, bring others uh, to the Lord as well, as Paul mentions. So, in other words, I'm saying, I I think that we should take this as Christian love in general, love in general, so that certainly yes starts above and certainly is expressed among the brothers and uh, to the world. And if we don't have one, we're not going to have the others as we have either. They're all tied up together. And the Lord's emphasis does seem to be uh, general here. You've lost your first love. Okay. Don Carson Wrote an article called A Church That Does All the Right Things, but put it this way This church is still proclaiming the truth, but they no longer passionately love Him who is the truth. They still perform good deeds, but no longer out of love, brotherhood, and compassion for others. They persevere, excuse me, they preserve the truth and witness courageously but they forget that love is the great witness to the truth. It's not so much that their genuine virtues have squeezed love out, but that no amount of good works, wisdom, and discernment in matters of church discipline, patient endurance and hardship, hatred of sin, or disciplined doctrine can ever make up for lovelessness. These believers were to be commended for so much. In fact, the Lord threatens the church at Pergamum with his wrath precisely for failing to do what the Ephesians were doing so faithfully and well. But hard work and devotion to the truth can't make up for a lack of love. Sometimes we feel like, okay, uh, Lord, perhaps I don't have this virtue or I'm not doing that thing, but I'm doing other things. And the Lord, in these letters, uh, puts a stop to us and to our churches comparing strengths to weaknesses and seeking to balance them out. No, he says, this is good, this is good, this is good. But he puts a, a shuddering stop to the idea that since we're doing these things so well, we can do without this, especially love. We are nothing without love. Are you and I deficient in love? I say, of course we are. And we are to make up that deficiency and rekindle that love, as the Lord tells us explicitly in verse 5. Not just by attempting to work up some emotion or theorizing about what love means, but specifically by repenting and doing the things that we did at first. That's the challenge, and I'll be taking that up next time. Simply to say that all churches are subject to mixture. There's never been a perfect church on earth, but Christians and churches are being told in no uncertain terms that they must take their calling seriously and they must not neglect fundamental matters of faithfulness like love. In conclusion, the church then in Ephesus may have been tiny in that city of some 300,000 people in the ancient world, that massive city. Here's this small group of insignificant people persecuted and afflicted. And and what, what revelation shows us, even from the beginning, but then especially as we go on, is that despite the way things look, the church is the center of God's plan for the whole world. The entire course of human history is unfolding as it is because Christians carry the future with them. The Roman Empire will soon be gone. The church will stand forever. Many people of that time had no idea that it was so. They looked at things as the world saw them, and and they thought that, well, there was no great reason for all that was happening in the world. But in fact, This book takes us to heaven where we see the real rule, the real authority, the real power, and how the Lord is keeping this little fledgling group as the apple of his eye, preparing them for a very difficult time ahead by showing them their weakness and seeking to correct what is lacking in them by such a reproof. The future will be all about her, and the reality that he sets before hearers and readers is a counter-reality to the appearance of the way things look in the world. Now I say it's the same thing then as now. Does the New York Times, does the Times of London, do the great uh, news outlets and uh, media moguls or world governments think in terms of the fortunes of the Christian church? Do they see the whole course of history is revolving around God's purposes for her? Do they think that the fortunes of the church are the center of all that takes place? Do they consider the present in terms of a future dominated by the prospect of Christ's return and his judgment and salvation? Do they make their decisions based on the conviction that things are, in fact, only as God sees them in heaven? Of course they do not. But we have been given this letter. And this letter to the churches, this this book of Revelation as we call it, provides us with a transcendent perspective on life, because it is the only true perspective. It is the only one that events will prove to be true in the days that come. We, we consider the nations of the world and all that they are doing, but they are a drop in the bucket before the Lord. His beloved church, the apple of his eye, that is the center. And we come to, this le- we come to these letters not just to find out some interesting things about some churches in the past, but to see supremely our Lord Jesus Christ there with the stars in his right hand, walking amidst the lampstands. And no matter what crazy things were happening in the world then is now, we are given grace to know that he will surely fulfill his good purposes in and through us, and we are to heed his voice. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, our great high priest, we thank you that you have looked to your lamp today. We pray that you would come to your sanctuary and pour the oil of your spirit upon this assembly, even as you promised that you would abundantly give your Holy Spirit to those who asked you. Do not leave us as beggars. We pray that you would continue your work in trimming out of that great lampstand the impurities of the wick, that her light would shine with a holy brilliance and that in persevering we might bear a faithful testimony no matter what should await us. For worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and and blessing. Restore to us the joy of our salvation and create a a right spirit within us that we might be able to see Christ.